our gathering together. And we thank you, Lord, that you are as present in each of them uh, as you are in the others. And we pray that you would um, remind us that that's our great privilege as we uh, come together, that we are coming to worship you and at the same time to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, And we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken in your word. And in your word, there's many things that are stated for us to know. But we thank you that uh, primarily uh, what we are told about in your word is um, truths and other matters about your own son, uh, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would uh, be thankful that we know about him and that we can understand what your word says concerning him but also that we can uh, know him in our own experience and as uh, Paul himself indicated uh, this experience is a lifelong one as he indicated (coughs) uh, many years after his conversion that his desire was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and that indeed was a a very um, striking ambition that he had there uh, to know Jesus better and when we actually read what he writes and what he wrote about Jesus uh, before he actually uh, wrote that particular letter Uh, then we would probably wonder uh, what else could even Paul learn about Christ. But the reality is that there's such a fullness uh, in the Saviour that there's enough to not only uh, intrigue our minds, but also to satisfy them uh, when we discover just exactly who he is and where he is and what he's doing and what he will yet do and as we've just been singing in the psalm we were singing about where he is and who he is he's the king of glory ascended on high gone to the highest place possible uh, sitting on the heavenly throne and that psalm is not the only place where that um, information is conveyed and we are thankful Lord that you tell us uh, about the invisible world uh, the world that is near to us uh, far nearer than we probably imagine but one that we can't see but it is one to which we are all travelling and as your word tells us there's only two possible destinations and one of them is with yourself and uh, one of them is not and therefore Lord help us as we gather here tonight to uh, be thankful that you have spoken to us we pray you bless the Lord's Supper that was held earlier today we thank you that it's a means of grace but that uh, the blessings of it are not confined uh, to the moment of it and indeed the blessings can follow us uh, to the days ahead 
And we pray that as a result of remembering the, the death of the one who is now alive forever, uh, that we would be getting spiritual refreshment and spiritual encouragement uh, from having remembered him in the way that he re requested, but also in the way that he instructed. And Lord, we just pray that we would um, be thankful that the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of Jesus, can uh, take of the things of Christ and reveal truths from them. And we pray that that particular means of blessing uh, would be very real in our hearts in the coming days. Lord, we pray too that you would remember the congregation here and each person uh, connected to it and that you would bless them all, the uh, pastor and his, the people, and that each of them would know your uh, richest blessing in whatever way uh, they need it, and in whatever way they need divine help at the moment, that you would provide it. And we thank you, Lord, that you know exactly what we need, but we remember that Paul reminds us that you are able to meet all our needs, uh, not merely out of your riches and glory, but according to your riches and glory. And when we think of what your spiritual treasures are, for you to give according to your riches indicates a very large amount. And we pray that that would be given abundantly uh, to all involved in the congregation here. Uh, bless your church throughout the world, that you would remember them all. Uh, every one of your people, as Paul told Timothy, uh, the Lord knows them that are his. Uh, there are perhaps some of your people living in uh, isolation in places like Afghanistan and other parts of the world where there is uh, opposition and persecution. And uh, whatever the, your people are, we ask you, Lord, to remember them and help them uh, at this time. Remember our society, we ask you, Lord, to send a spiritual revival. We are seeing signs of your displeasure all around us, and we just ask you, Lord, to have mercy on us as a society. So we pray that you will be with us throughout our service tonight. Speak to us from your word, and bless us while we're here, for your own name's sake. Amen. Uh, we can sing from Psalm 2 in the Scottish Psalter, and we'll sing verses 1 uh, to 8. Why rage the heathen on vain things? Why do the people mind? Kings of the earth do set themselves, and princes are combined. Verses 1 to 8.
Uh, we can turn uh, to the Old Testament and read Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And may God bless that reading. We can now sing Psalm 110 from Sing Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit here at my right hand until I make your foes a stool on which your feet may stand.
we can turn back to the psalm we read from the Old Testament, Psalm 110. And I would like us in the main to think about uh, verse uh, 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. don't know if anyone's ever asked you what's the most quoted verse from the Old Testament. What's the most quoted one that appears in the New Testament? And you may wish to think about that just now. What verse do we think is the one that's most quoted in the New Testament? And it's actually uh, verse 1 of Psalm 110. Jesus quotes it a couple of times. Peter quotes it in the day of Pentecost. Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's quoted in the book of Hebrews. Indeed, some people think that uh, the book of Hebrews is actually an exposition of Psalm 110. And that the full meaning of the psalm is found in the book of Hebrews. And indeed, um, the writer of Hebrews uh, regards his, what we call a letter, uh, he regards it as a word of exhortation. So, so it's a kind of first century sermon that was um, written out and sent, exhorting the, the, whoever the recipients were, because we know they were Jews, but where they lived, nobody uh, actually knows don't know who wrote it and we don't know to whom it was sent but there we are that's the way the reality of things but anyway it's, it's useful to take these suggestions that people have made and just see what value there is in them and if you ever wish to read through the book of Hebrews at one go You'll see, uh, I think, that there's a lot of uh, connections to Psalm 110. In verse 1, there's a means to help us how to understand the psalm. And that's in the two divine names that appear in the first uh, clause. The Lord says to my Lord... There's the word Lord in capitals. And there's the second one, Lord, where only the first letter is a capital. And that distinction is quite important. We could um, say it like this. The covenant Lord says to my sovereign Lord, and it helps us to understand who the verses in the psalm are addressed to. Because we can see that verses 2 to 4, they're addressed to the, the Lord without the capitals. But then verses 5 to 7, they're addressed to the Lord 
with capitals and we can just see that by looking at the pronouns that are in these verses for example in verse 3 the Lord with capitals sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter so the pronoun your tells us who has been spoken to and it's the Lord without the capital and when we get down to verse 5 we see the Lord is at your right hand the Lord there at the right hand is the one without the capitals but the your indicates has been spoken to the other one if we want to put it into New Testament language we could translate in verse 1 the father said to the son sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool it's like us to think of a couple of things from mainly verse 3 the picture of the king what an astonishing pictures made of him here what does it say to us to think about Jesus as having the Jew of your youth what does, what does that mean well, think about the picture of the king and then secondly two types of service your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments what kind of service is indicated there well we can see from verse 1 that we are listening in to a divine conversation and although it's it's in the present tense the Lord says to my Lord the psalmist David is actually writing about an event that's not going to happen for 2,000 years what's he referring to well I'm sure we know what he's referring to he's referring to the ascension of Jesus his ascension that happened to him obviously after his resurrection but isn't it extraordinary now here's David all these centuries before the event would happen writing about it so that the people of God could sing about it when they went up to the temple or to their synagogue and just saying <coughs> that this event is coming and you can praise God that it's coming and of course we can look back and just marvel not only at the, the miracle of the event which of course is crucially important but that the fact that, the God, that God himself drew attention to it long before it happened 
and did that no doubt for the covenant for the comfort of his people and of course the verse is indicating isn't it that there's more than one divine person the Lord says to my Lord in this heavenly conversation it's hard to tell looking at this sentence isn't it whether the the word sit is an instruction or an invitation when you tell somebody to sit are you instructing them or inviting them maybe both and we have to ask ourselves when is the invitation made and to who is it given to and of course we just mentioned it was done at the ascension but what happened at the ascension Jesus was returning but in what capacity was he returning to heaven he's returning there as the servant of the Lord the one who had come into our world to do God's will although he was the eternal son of God and he came down here to fulfill a mission that was put into his hands and of course the mission was the one that we were thinking about this morning to pay the penalty for our sins and as an indication that his work had been accepted he was raised from the dead and he came forth in power after having not only paid the penalty for our sins and not only dealt with uh, the power of the enemy the devil and his hosts but he had also defeated death itself and come out from the grave and when he came out from the grave we could say that his initial tasks had been finished completed and he was kind of going to change the location from where he would be working and he ascended to heaven and he ascends there as a servant of the Lord to do great things throughout the rest of history as the exalted king and that's what he's doing today so this word sit is not an invitation to do nothing it's a change of position the servant of the Lord is now highly exalted and of course Isaiah predicted that when he has God the Father saying behold my servant although he is brought very low he shall be highly exalted and given a name that's above every name so it's an astonishing invitation it was never given to anyone else and it cannot be given to anyone else 
Because the only one that can sit on the divine throne is a divine person. And Jesus fulfills that because he's the eternal Son of God. But of course, this um, invitation and the acceptance of it is a public occasion. The people on earth didn't see it happening. They couldn't see it happening. But if they had paid attention to Psalm 110, they could have by faith seen what was taking place. And it's a public event in heaven. And the audience of this enthronement, well, they're the angels, hosts and hosts of them. And they are full of praise. Because we can read about the, the ascension of Jesus in Revelation 4 and 5. And we get this picture of the angels praising God. And then there's the, the picture of the, no one being able to open the book. The scroll. And John, as he's talking to one of the angels, and he, who is able to open this book? The scroll. Take the seals off it to reveal what's written inside it. And he weeps because he thinks there's no one who can open it. I mean, why can't God open it? I mean, that's the obvious question to ask, isn't it? God's on the throne. Why, why can't he open it? But the answer is given in the chapter. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed to open the book. The scroll. And when he gets to sit on the throne. That's what he does. And of course people wonder what's in this scroll or what's in this book. That's sealed. But now it's opened. And various suggestions are made some say it's just a list of events that's going to happen but I think a better suggestion is that it's the book of life and all these names that are written on it the king on the throne is going to bring them in and if our name is there that was his commission open the seals and bring in the names that are there and down the last 2000 years millions have come and the king has done it but here is his crowning and of course it was a crowning with expectation. Here's the one who can do this extraordinary event. 
And although he's put, placed on the throne and invited to sit there, we're told something surprising about it, aren't we, there? In verse 2, although he's been crowned in Zion, the heavenly Zion, he rules in the midst of his enemies. I mean, his enemies are not in Zion, are they? His enemies are down here, in this world. And what's going to happen to these enemies? Well, we're told that in verse 1. God the Father makes a commitment to God the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sometimes you look out in the world and we say these enemies are huge. And we get apprehensive about the future of the Saviour's kingdom. And of course while in our country things may get worse there are parts of the world today that once were flourishing Christian countries and today there's something else but when they were flourishing Christian countries our forefathers were idolaters but the king gave out his command and the gospel came here with power and he can do that anywhere in the world where he wishes because all power has been given to him in heaven and on earth so he rules over his enemies but in a certain sense if that was all that was said that would be well if somebody's over something they might not need to be involved in it but he says there in verse 2 as I mentioned a minute ago he actually rules in the middle in the midst of his enemies some people show their power from afar but this king this servant of the Lord can show his power anywhere and he reigns on high and he reigns down here he reigns everywhere he rules in the midst of his enemies so we're given this picture of him could ask ourselves couldn't we what would be the best description of Jesus that you would like to get after his ordeal on the cross when his body was mangled when his face was marred more than any man what vision of him would you like to be told about him after that 
Well, there's an incredible vision here, isn't there? Eternal youth. You've got the Jew of your youth. He's young forever. As I mentioned a minute ago, he's been on the throne for 2,000 years. Glorified. And we say it with reverence. He doesn't look a day older. He went up there in the strength of endless youth. And all that beauty that came to him as he was glorified is his forever. And the problems of age don't affect him. He's not going to lose his throne because of the power of his enemies. And he's not going to lose his throne because somehow or other he's going to become deficient. He is perfect and perfect forever. What an amazing king he is. And he has a day of power. What is his day of power? Well, the word day, as we know, has got different meanings. It can mean a 24-hour day. Or it can mean a period of time. What is the day of Jesus' power? When did it start? And when will it end? The day of his power began when he ascended. And it's a day that is still going on. He rules. All power was his when he went ascended to heaven. And he hasn't lost an inch of it. He is still in control. The day of his power is still there. We live in the day of his power. We can look up to heaven and see the king is there. And because that is the case, we should be confident that whatever happens, he's in charge. And this picture of a day, well, David's a poet. And poets can mingle pictures. And they can use the same word. And the word can have more than one meaning. And this particular day, David describes it as the womb of the morning. Because the morning is the start of the day, isn't it? What does he mean by the womb of the morning? Well, we just think of any morning. What does it signify? It signifies that the darkness is over. 
And of course in the experience of Jesus He had descended into Into the grave But here he is The day he rose from the dead was a great morning It was the start of a wonderful day A day in which he's going to be exalted And for Jesus There's no more darkness He will never Ever Find himself there again So We could say the morning Meant the darkness had gone Why call it the womb of the morning? And surely that's an indication that there's life. That now that he reigns, life is going to flow. And just think of the life that has come from heaven since then. He has life. And he can give life. And all the people in that scroll They're going to get his life It's going to come to them Whatever they are So surely we have here, don't we An amazing picture of Jesus And it's revealed to somebody True, an important king in Israel But it's revealed to him Long before Jesus ever came into the world A beautiful picture to think about To think about our handsome king Without any sign of age And he never will But then there's two kinds of service People are going to offer themselves and During the day of his power And I suppose we could call these Two types of service Conversion And consecration They come To get converted You don't realise Some of them That that's what's happening to them But when the king is at work That's what happens When we go to the book of Acts How does Luke begin the book of Acts? Well he says that in his former treatise That's his gospel He wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach And the use of the word began Indicates that now in his second treatise He will describe what Jesus continues to do and teach The book of Acts Is not the Acts of the Apostles The book of Acts Is the Acts of Jesus From heaven As he gathers in his people 
And he does it in all kinds of unusual ways, doesn't he? Just read through the book and see what's happened to people because of Jesus. In chapter 1, there's a gathering of 120. Who's in the 120? Well, there's some there you wouldn't expect to be there. Like his brothers. But there they are. Before that, they had dismissed his claims. But as Paul tells us, Jesus appeared to James, his brother. That must have been an astonishing event for James. We're not told how the other three brothers were brought in. But there they are, gathered with 120. Jesus from heaven did it. Or he may have done it before he went to heaven. But there they are, waiting for him from heaven to do something. Because he's been away ten days. And nothing's happened yet. But when the ten days are over, 3,000. 3,000 are converted. And is there anything surprising about the 3,000? Well, most of them, six weeks before this, have been shouting to crucify him. An astonishing display of mercy, isn't it? From Jesus on the throne to show it to the the ones who had cried for his destruction. And instead of bringing destruction on them, he brings mercy. How about the Chancellor from Ethiopia. The one who had the charge of all the treasure of the queen down there. He's even reading the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. Hasn't a clue what it means. Philip. Is taken away from Samaria to go out into the desert. And there in the desert, he meets a man wanting to know about Jesus. But he doesn't know it's Jesus he's wanting to know about. And Philip, as we know, climbs into the chariot, tells him how Isaiah has been fulfilled. And there, in the middle of nowhere, the man from Ethiopia is converted. What kind of great king can do this? And then there's Saul of Tarsus. Determined to crush the church. Who's going to get crushed first? 
Saul of Tarsus or the Christians in Damascus we know the story the ones in Damascus are petrified at the arrival of Saul of Tarsus because we can see that from the response of Ananias when he was told to go and see Paul nobody else could bring Saul of Tarsus to his knees but Jesus did from heaven he did it who's like him and we can go on right through the book of Acts and what extraordinary conversions there are Lydia searching for some reality a Gentile who's become a Jewish proselyte but her heart is still empty she goes off to her usual prayer meeting because there's not enough Jews to have a synagogue and she goes on this particular day there's a few strangers at it and one of them starts to speak and as he does so the Lord opens her heart he can do that in the desert he can do it at the riverside in Philippi there's another woman not like Lydia indeed probably the very opposite of Lydia chained to the occult and she gets delivered there's also a man there who's never given a thought to his soul and if it has to be an earthquake to bring him to his knees there will be an earthquake and the jailer almost in complete opposite to what he ever done before he starts washing prisoners Jesus changed him in a moment what power and he's been doing that ever since and of course we don't need to despair do we who is there Jesus cannot change there's no one that's a real encouragement to pray isn't it pray to the king and this gospel that he sends out in order for people to be converted what enormous task does he ask these sinners to engage in 
when he calls them to repentance and faith it's the same message for them all doesn't matter what kind of sinners they've been whether they've been religious sinners or irreligious sinners it's the same message repent change your mind it's not irrational weigh it up see who you are in the light of God's perfection in the light of his law see who you are but don't sit down and mope or sit down in despair and listen to what he says trust in me says Jesus doesn't he that's faith dependence instead of depending on whatever else you were depending on before the gospel says to us doesn't it depend on Christ but faith is more than dependence faith is embracing we've been told that in our catechism those of us have had it all our lives we embrace him as he's freely offered to us in the gospel and as Calvin put it faith is the warm embrace of love and this gospel just does it it's the power of God unto salvation doesn't need anything else doesn't have to be prepared for just spread it and see what happens and then there's the other kind of service and the psalm dressed in holy garments it's an army of saints fighting a religious war but the war they're fighting is not with earthly weapons they're fighting with the only sword they've been given which is the sword of the spirit and they engage in this warfare not because they've got any power in themselves but because Jesus from heaven's throne delights to use those who are committed to his service and we just consecrate ourselves it's not what we're doing on the Lord's table today we were saying to him we are his and he is ours
And it's not just ours for a wonderful future, but he's ours to go with us into this enormous task of taking the gospel to people that we cannot change ourselves. But the king can change them. Our task is just to tell it and see what the king can do. I mean, how did we get into the kingdom if we're in it? It's because somebody told us in one way or another and since that happened to us we know the method is successful so we just do it and see what happens a great king one worth serving and one who wants us to serve him Shall we pray? Lord, we have the best news. We know there's a king, a king who reigns in power. The church down the centuries has known it, and it's been passed on to us. And our task is to pass it on. Help us, Lord, as we live in our so-called post-Christian society, to realize that the power of the king has not diminished in any way, that he still has all power in heaven and on earth. We pray, Lord, that you would answer our prayers about those that we want to see in the kingdom. Now you would burden us to pray for others who will yet come into the kingdom. Lord, help us to see that we're soldiers in your army if we belong to you. So bless us, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing in conclusion from Psalm 2, the remaining verses of the psalm, Scottish Psalter, verses 9 to 12. Thou shalt us with a weighty rod of iron break them all.
There's a time of fellowship after the service and you're all invited to wait for that. <clears throat> May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ